wait, I mean, I always conclude and then I never really know how to conclude. I just keep going on and on like <laughs> Michael Scott. Sometimes I'll start a sentence and I don't even know where it's going. I just hope I find it along the way. Like an improv conversation. An improvisation. Welcome back to my channel, Wendy Renee here. I'm so excited to be back. If you're new here, I was in the JW organization for over three decades and now I'm not. And so if you're interested in my story, go back and watch my original videos and you actually can see how my journey has evolved uh, over the last couple of years. And uh, I'm right along with you. Don't think I'm this healed, empowered person. I mean, I am and I amn't. Um, amn't is a word now, so we've made that one up. Anyway, welcome back to the show. So let's get going. Before we begin, thank you so much for liking, sharing, and subscribing to this channel. The podcast is doing really well, so thank you for listening on the podcast. And it just shows that there is hope and positivity on the other side of high control religion. And if you are in our community and you are having conversations in the comments, thank you so much because I'm getting feedback that by your stories, by you coming on the channel, more and more people are feeling like they're not alone. And that is the whole point of sharing our story, that in each other we find ourselves. Our next guest is my friend Vivian. She is also an activist. Pretty sure you'll find yourself in her story too. Vivian, thank you so much for coming on the show. I want the audience to know that you have your own YouTube channel and I want to talk about what got you into activism, a little bit of your background, what you're doing now. And I'm just, I'm really thankful for your time and your insight into this. So have at it. Tell us what brought you here. So I was born in Baghdad, Iraq, and my family moved to America when I was one and a half. My mom joined the organization when I was six years old. My aunt was already a Jehovah's Witness, so my mom just kind of followed her lead. And I have two older sisters. They did not follow my mom's lead. I was the only one who got baptized in the religion. And as my mom became a Jehovah's Witness, my dad used to beat my mom because as a Chaldean Catholic woman, you're not supposed to change religion. You're putting the family to shame. So he would beat her and then call her all kinds of horrible names in Arabic. I saw him get put away um, to jail several times in my young, uh, my young life and my teenage life. And so that was kind of like my upbringing. And I wanted to be the good little girl. I wanted to obey my mom and I wanted to have love from one of my parents. I saw my dad wasn't going to be there. So I wanted to win the approval and love from mom. So I got baptized as the Jehovah's Witness. And then uh, I tried my hardest to be the best Jehovah's Witness little girl that I possibly could be. I didn't regular pioneer, but I did uh, auxiliary pioneer. And my mom became a regular pioneer like shortly after she got baptized. She was having studies. She was having all kinds of people come into the organization. Uh, she started being part of the Arabic speaking congregation in Michigan. And that congregation kind of, it, it was a group and then it grew into a congregation and she's brought on probably half of the, the congregation. She's a very big evangelist, I would say, in the Arabic-speaking community in all of the U.S., in California, and even in Canada. So she's kind of known as somebody, and I'm her daughter. So she's kind of a big deal. So um, I really wanted to make her proud. And then I got baptized, like I said, at 16. And my dad would, um, he would call the organization a cult. He would say that my, we 
My mom specifically was brainwashed and I used to hate that. My mom used to always bring large amounts of literature at home, being a regular pioneer. She would bring home Watchtower Week magazines, brochures, books, and hide them in different places around the house, laundry detergent boxes under the bed in certain cabinets. And my dad would find them and then he would rip them up and throw them around the house like confetti. And after he would rip them up, that's when he would get really angry and start beating my mom. And just the noise of like the ripping used to be a trigger for me for many years. So it got really, really bad. They separated for a while. And then my, my dad actually pretended he wanted to be a witness. He was going to the meetings. He was, I don't know if he was studying, but that kind of won my mom's heart. They got back together and they definitely were, my mom could have separated from him. And then later I found out my mom also cheated on my dad. She wasn't the perfect woman that she portrays to be as a witness. But the, the fact that the elders really made her feel like she was doing such a great job by staying with somebody who beat her for the religion, because if you're familiar with the Jehovah's Witnesses, they make you feel like if somebody's abusing you because of Jehovah, then you're doing the right thing. Right. So the abuse made her feel like a very important person in the organization because she was enduring my dad's beating because of the religion and she was still in the organization. So she was just like, I am doing the right thing. I'm making Jehovah's heart happy and I'm very much making myself happy. And as an Arabic woman who is already uh, my community as an Arabic culture is already not um, the woman doesn't really have a high stance. So the fact that the elders are building her up like this, she just felt very, again, it's feeding into that narcissism. So I'm doing such a great job. I'm doing great. And then Jehovah's Witnesses are a perfect place for her to flourish as a Jehovah's Witness. So she's been now a regular pioneer for over 30 years. And when I was 24, I got I got married to uh, a Jehovah's Witness, third generation on both sides of his family. And I just wanted to escape my um, Middle Eastern loud family. I just wanted to be part of an all American calm family. So I married this guy who was very controlling, very insecure and very controlling. So couldn't hang out with people like I wanted every guy I was talking to, I was flirting with him. Didn't really want to do anything fun. It, it just got from one thing to another thing to another thing. And it, it just, it didn't start, uh, the baseline didn't start with that because when I got married to him, I wasn't marrying just him. I was marrying his whole family. He had a good father, a good mom, two siblings. And I just was like, I want to belong to a family because my family was so, my family was so broken. So his family structure was something that I was drawn to. But once I saw that the grass was not greener on the other side and his family also had issues that I didn't realize until I got part of the family, that's when I was like, started making me say like, what, okay, what is this? What am I doing? And then, like I said, it just got from escalated to escalated and seven and a half years into our marriage, I actually ended up having sex with a guy that I had met several months back and it was just a one-time thing, but that was my wake up call to say, I've been unhappy this whole time. And I didn't have an affair with this person, but I, I, it was happened in July. And then it was Thanksgiving weekend that I, I mustered up the boldness to tell my husband that I've been unhappy for a really long time and I want a divorce. And in my heart, 
thinking that I'm going to be clear with him. I'm going to be uh, as front as possible. And then he says to me, he forgives me. He wants everything to work out in the midst of him crying. And he's like, we need to talk to the elders as soon as possible. So I don't know what a couple of days we spoke to the elders. We had a judicial meeting again, thinking to myself, I'm going to be straightforward with the elders. I'm going to be crystal clear in my wanting, wanting a divorce. Like there's no way around this. Like this has been an escalating thing. I'm not going to waste any more years of my life. So met with the elders and I told them and they said, since my husband was the innocent person in this situation, I was the one who committed adultery that I didn't have a choice in the matter. So I was getting disfellowshipped and I just, I, I had no words. Um, I even, even looking back, like I was so naive because I even said in front of the elders that if I stayed married to him, which he wanted me to do, that I was going to cheat on him because I was so unhappy for so many years. And he knew that very much. So, so again, I was very naive in that situation, but I, I kept saying in my head, the clearer I am, the more honest I am about a situation, right. the more the elders are going to be okay. But no, that's not how it worked. So I got disfellowshipped around my 32nd birthday. This was December, first week of December, 2011. And during that time, my mom came to my house, my little studio apartment that I had in Royal Oak, Michigan. And she said to me, you better try to get reinstated as soon as possible. You've already put our, our family to shame. And cause I was very open about cheating on my husband. Like I had no shame. Like, yeah, I cheated on my husband. I've been ha- unhappy and I'm getting a divorce. Like I, I, like you're going to find out somehow, like I, I had no shame behind that. I find that so, fascinating. If you can just talk me through that for one second, because yeah. there have been other guests on this channel that we've talked about how the only really way to get out of a toxic abusive or even just an unhappy marriage is, is adultery. And so they set you up to do something, to make a decision that is probably contrary to what you actually would do. And it rules like that. It make makes Otherwise, rational people do very unrational things. So unrational, irrational, do very irrational things. So talk me through that. If, if, if you're so, um, if you have no shame about it, I find that to actually be very refreshing because there's a lot of shame around doing something like that just to get out of a marriage. So what, what's your mindset on that? And I'm sure you can relate to people in the audience who may have done it or considering it even, or just are really struggling with this this notion that I have to do something, I have to take act, massive action to get out of an unhealthy marriage. So shame does not make it okay. Shame does not mean I have the right to do anything. Shame just means like being uh, upfront about my shame means I'm a human being who has human emotions that weren't met or, or were, were met. And now I'm just like sharing my, my raw emotions with you. And by me sharing my raw emotions with you or my raw situation about my life in a very intimate situation, then I'm hopefully making you feel comfortable in your most intimate, vulnerable places. So that's the reason why I share my story so vulnerably, because I know women are hiding and they're so uh, scared about things like being molested, raped, which I've been both of those things, divorce, abuse. I've, I've been through all those things, but I am a completely different thing. I, I talked to you a little bit about the topic of this thing, I, uh, this interview being a rebel with a cause. 
I've kind of lived the last 10 years of my life, especially being a rebel with a cause. Like I have this strong desire to prove to myself that I can be the best version of myself with, despite the witnesses. Like I've lived all of these things, but I want to prove to myself that I can be the best version of myself. And that doesn't mean that I deny any of those things. I hold them true to myself, but I also recognize that those those things needed to happen in order to make me who I am today. So if I deny the fact that I had sex with somebody else um, besides my husband, then I wouldn't, I wouldn't be hiding a part of myself. Uh, And there's, there's so many, there's so many layers about hiding parts of ourselves. The more we hide of ourselves, Mm -hmm. the more we're hiding our ourselves to people, the more untrust, untrustful we are to ourselves. And as ex-witnesses, trust and feeling safe is the number one component that people are lacking when it comes to healing. Mm -hmm. Safety and trust. I mean, I spoke to a woman yesterday who said she's been with her partner for 15 years and she still doesn't even fully trust them because he's worldly and she's been out for 20 years. So it's, it's still so ingrained in us that trust, but it comes from being in, in my personal opinion, in my personal experience that once you're okay with your most vulnerable parts, and I'm not saying you should, you need to broadcast it to everybody, but I feel like I can. My purpose of doing that is to allow people not to be ashamed of their most private parts because so many people are hurting and then we don't even know it. And I, and and they, I appreciate that so much. And in order for you to encourage that, you yourself are demonstrating it. So uh, you mentioned that it took you a long time to try and get reinstated. So talk us through that because I know that yeah. that's this case for a lot of people right now. Yeah. So it took me four letters and two years, two years of just being rejected. And the elders told me there hadn't been enough time. And I just didn't understand because I knew there were people in my situation that were getting reinstated after six months. I didn't understand where they're coming up with this story from. So after two years and the four letters, I made the move again from Chicago to California. And at that time I was like, you know what? I'm not going to be a witness anymore. I don't know what my life is going to look like outside of the organization, but I want to see what life is going to look like outside of the organization. And I was already building this life outside of the organization, working with people, living with them as a life and wellness coach. And I was really actively creating my life. I didn't work a nine to five job. I've been working for myself since 2012. And I was creating this life that is outside of the bubble that I knew I couldn't create as a witness. Did you still believe it when you decided you're not going back though? Were you not going back based on ideology or based on they don't want me? You know what? It's so interesting because somebody asked me like, what did you read that made you decide you didn't want to be a witness or whatever? But I don't think I ever fully believed it. I think I just was, I think I was part of it just for winning my mom's love initially. And then I was part of the organization because it was my friends and family. So it was community for me. It was like community based. And I met people along the way that I more or less identified as my, a substitute for my mom, a substitute for my father, substitute for siblings. So it was my community. And like you said, like initially, like community is everything. We seek community. If we don't have community, then we can end up very, very broken. So that was my community. And whether or not I fully believed it, 
I've been out for 10 years now. I don't think I did. No, I just went along with it. And if I had any kind of, oh, I wonder, like, I know when the, I don't know, 2000, early 2000, when they came out with the priest allegations and molestation, he went huge and viral. I thought to myself, I wonder if this is like happening in the organization. And then shortly after there was a talk being like, no, we're a clean organization. There's no way things are happening. And then after I got disfellowshipped and like the Leah Rumini stuff came out and I just, I was blown away. So I had a, th- a thinking concept. I heard the brother on the stage that got shut down. And then it's like, once you leave, things start opening up. But I can honestly say that when I left, I was really avoiding the ex-Jehovah's Witness community because I knew that they were angry. Like when you're a Jehovah's Witness, the apostates are these angry, vicious humans. You're either that or you're addicted to heroin, a prostitute, a gambler, who knows, an alcoholic, exactly, alcoholic, (laughs) all the above. And it's like, yeah, no. (laughs) So I, I was just like, I'm not going to be any of those things. I'm also not this bitter, angry, like, sure. I was angry for a bit. There was times where I wanted to go into the kingdom hall and bomb it. And I think we all go through that kind of stage once we leave the organization, but that was early on. And that was also when I wasn't getting reinstated. I was just getting really frustrated with the congregation and the, the organization. Like, why aren't you reinstating me? And I was getting anxiety attacks and didn't have anyone to speak to again. It was just really difficult for me. So yeah, I, after moving to California, I decided I didn't want to be a witness and I wasn't sure what that life was going to look like, but I was already building a life outside of the organization. And I did, however, when I moved to California to Huntington Beach, I made sure that there was a kingdom hall near me. So I actually saw the kingdom hall. I'm like, you know, if I decide to go back, I needed to know that that was, that was there and available for me. So in that back of my head, so spotted that. And then um, four months after I moved to California, I met my husband who, and we, we got married really quick after two months, but he was the person that came into my life. And I had like 80% of my clothes were like Jehovah's Witness clothes, like the suits, the dresses, very conservative. And I had so much clothes. So from when I moved from Chicago to California, I had a small U-Haul full of just clothes and random, random shit that I didn't have a bed. I didn't have a couch because I donated all that. So it was mostly clothing, shoes, purses, accessories, and all the kind of stuff that you get dressed up to go to the assemblies, to go to the kingdom hall, to give talks with, to go out on service with. Like I lived in Michigan and Chicago. So I had all the winter stuff to go on service with, with like that's bulky, big stuff. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that, that being said, he's like, what are you doing with all of these things? We live in California. One, mm-hmm. two, I don't see you going back to the kingdom hall. I was like, you know what? You're right. But I, I had this, I wanted to hold on to these things because I was still sad. If I got rid of these, I knew that I was closing the door to the whole community. They represented so I really had to, yeah. exactly. They really represented something. So thought about it for a while. He's like, we can either donate it, sell it, or um, yeah, throw in the trash. So I did that. I donated everything. And I I was really sentimental with when I donated everything because I knew that that was like the goodbye to my mom. That was a goodbye to all my cousins and my, and my uncle that I have in the religion, all my friends. That was me saying, I never want to speak to you again. So that was really painful for me. I remember taking a picture of it and just like sitting in the Goodwill, like a parking lot and just being like, this is, this is happening right now. Wow. Okay. I'm doing it. So I did that. And the thing about, 
when my husband, he just allowed me to critically think. So he's not like, you should do that. He just was asking me open-ended questions. Like, why are you holding on to these things? Can we talk about that? Okay. You got remarried. Did you mention that? Oh yeah. So I met my, I met my, I met my husband in April of 2014, just four months. Yeah. After I, I moved oh, to California. Okay. So just to clarify, when you say my husband, we're talking about your new life. But my talking. new life. This was, this was April of 2014. So, mm-hmm. um, he, we met through Instagram, through a post or through a, an email that he has sent me. He's half Swedish, half Spanish. He emailed me, we met, we fell in love and we got married within two months of knowing each other. So he's allowed me to really listen to my story and just really allowed me to think for myself. And him and his family were the first people that loved me unconditionally. They've showed me what unconditional family love means. And he has so many friends and he has shown me what true friendship is. Not Jehovah's Witness friendship, not fake friendships, but real friendships. So he has friends all the way from literally from when he was born to now he has like over a dozen friends like that. And then friends he's met along the way. He's lived in Barcelona for five years, grew up in Stockholm, Sweden. He lived in Miami for a while. We lived in California for a while. So he's really well-versed. He's trilingual. He's taught me a lot of things about living. And I was like this proper Jehovah's witness girl. And he was this wild child. He's really taught me how, (laughs) how living actually looks like. And again, he's never actually told me to walk this certain path, but he's just allowed me to think for myself, asking me questions along the way, which has just been really, really helpful. And through that, when we, when we first got married, we worked together as wellness coaches. So I was already uh, living with families as a wellness coach, creating e-recipe cookbooks, And by the end of 2013, I had lived with 24 families from all over the world as a wellness coach. I lived with them from four days to two weeks. And then when we got married, I was still living with families, but we were working together as online wellness coaches. And then we had clients that came and lived with us. So consider it like a wellness retreat, but just with one other person and two coaches. So we had clients that came and stayed with us. We had a two bedroom uh, apartment. So they had their own bathroom bedroom. We had singles uh, husband, wife, siblings, mother and children come to us, probably had close to 40 uh, people coming to us in the span of six years. So that was uh, quite a project. And we had also continued on my my first project where we lived with families. So we lived with a couple families. One family we lived with was in Nigeria. So we've had some quite adventurous times just traveling and living with families as well. That was 2016. And yeah, during that time, he also has seen how the Jehovah's Witnesses have treated me. So the first time we went back home to visit my family, he said like, oh, I'm going to see, like, he didn't understand how my mom was ignoring me because she's a Jehovah's Witness and he didn't get it. And he's like, I'm a good salesperson. Like, I'll talk to her. We'll, we'll figure it out. You guys are going to have the, the conversation again. So once he realized, like, it's not happening, she liked him. But I was just like, again, completely like a ghost in the room. That was when we were, I was still speaking to my family in 2014. He got it. And like the second time he saw her, she was sharing scriptures with him. And he's like, no, 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 forget about this. So he didn't really understand how 
how people were treating me and how against that um, they were to me, my, my relatives until he saw it for himself. Cause he just, he's like, people don't do that. Like you can't go from loving your daughter to anyone who's never, I mean, to even explain it, 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 it doesn't make sense to anyone that I speak to who has no exposure to it. Exactly. And also he gets treated a certain way. And then I get treated a certain way by my mom. And then my other relatives that are, are non-witnesses, like they'll say hi to him, but they won't say hi to me. They only, they won't even look at me. And so he's the, just like, what's the message there? Like maybe he could come in if we ignore her. Like what? Yes, exactly. Exactly. E- exactly. So for me, it's, it's just like, no, and no. So the last time I visited my family was 2016 and my family's just not in a good space and they're just really hurting and I don't like to use the word toxic, but yeah, they, they're just, they're just dealing with a lot of things. And I've really tried my hardest to care and reach out to them, but they really haven't shown any personal interest to me. Um, and in 2020, December, me and my husband moved out of Los Angeles and I'm trying to gain my permanent residency in Sweden. But in 2020, we lived in Sweden, in Spain, Mexico, Costa Rica, and we spent eight months living in Sweden in uh, last year. And then now I'm trying to get my permanent residency in the process of getting your permanent residency in Sweden. You can't be living in the country. So I had to leave Sweden. It's, it's a lot different than the U.S., whereas the U.S., we just had to get married and he was a, a citizen. So it's not like that in Sweden. They don't acknowledge the fact that me and my husband have been married for eight years and I'm just an American citizen. I'm not just, I'm not like this weird concept. I actually don't have a citizenship in Iraq. Not that I know of, I don't have a birth certificate. I just have an American citizenship from when I was like six years old. So I don't know how that even works, but yeah. So I'm trying to get permanent residency in Sweden. They don't call it citizenship. It's a little different and it can take up to a year or over a year. So Right now, it's been four months since we started the process, and we're living here in Costa Rica, and we got here January 16th of this year, so it's April 2nd right now, and I'm probably going to be here for the rest of the year. Uh, I might go back to Sweden to visit my husband's family, but he's actually going back home to Sweden uh, next week because he is focusing on working with men with depression in the Swedish market, and I really encourage him to go back to Sweden to focus on that. and. I'm working on the ex-Jehovah's Witness community, even though I do have clients that are not ex-Jehovah's Witnesses at all. Like I would say about 35% of my clientele are not ex-Witnesses. But then I have this program with that I just made about five weeks ago at this point called Find Your Truth, which was completely inspired by you when I spoke to you, after I spoke to you, and just kind of getting this kind of woman vibe going on with the ex-Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, I went for a run and like, okay, let the listeners know it was just a conversation of two coaches collaborating. (laughs) I want everyone to know (laughs) you did it on your own. And I was like, yeah, that sounds great. Do that. That was the extent of my involvement (laughs) in this program that Vivian has curated. So tell us all about it. Tell us exactly, um, how you're working toward helping the community and how you're a classic example of how my slogan since I've started this is, you know, in our stories, we find it in each other and in each other, we find ourselves. So now land it for us. You've been through many lifetimes 
just in one lifetime. And now here you are helping others. So tell us exactly what this looks like for you and what you do now. So I'm currently living in Coclis, Costa Rica, which is probably why you've heard lots of boy noise or boy noise, bird noises. Um, I love it. I love it so much. Yeah. I live about um, a one minute walk from the beach. I just actually went to the ocean right before our call. My hair was still drying Um, and I just need good Wi-Fi in order to work. So I live in like a 400 square foot place in the middle of the jungle between the road and the the beach. And I do all my my work online. Uh, I have uh, my program, as I mentioned, which is called Find Your Find Your Truth, and my goal with it is to create a safe space for women to go through the processes of working through guilt, fear, and shame associated with being a Jehovah's Witness. What I've learned, however, is the Jehovah's Witness stuff is one layer. Then we have the family stuff, which is another layer, and a lot of times they just mend together, and they're all like like in a in a um, washing machine together. So they don't really, you can't really fix one without fixing the other. So everyone in the, in my group has worked with a therapist before and are on the healing journey. So there's different levels. Once we leave the organization, there's the anger, there's hate. There's just like, I don't even want to like, even like bother with anything, the obsession with like knowing the latest and greatest that have came out with the Jehovah's Witness stuff, the Reading next light that's on crack. Is what it is. <laughs> it, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So the women that I, I screen them before I work with them, I'm not just taking any randoms. So they are already on their healing journey and they've all gone through therapy for other things, whether it's abuse, being uh, sexual abuse, physical abuse, family abuse, anything like that. And then they've mentioned to the Jehovah's Witness stuff to their therapist, but they really didn't get it. And this right now is a space for people to be understood, be seen, be heard. And then for them to work in a space where then they can build on each other and then move from where they are right now. So it is eight weeks. I have a setup where we do a 90 minute, most of the time it's longer group call every single week. And then we have a WhatsApp group where people can keep in contact with each other. I have an assignment each week that I send out with different themes. Like last theme was changing unhelpful beliefs associated to the Jehovah's Witnesses. So it goes into asking specific questions about beliefs that you're still holding on to and then testing those beliefs. And then we bring that conversation into the group. And then we hear people's thoughts, concepts, and the reason why they're still holding on to these beliefs, how these beliefs are affecting their life, and then how they can break free from them. Another one is fear. What is the what fears are you holding on to based from what the Jehovah's Witnesses have taught you? How is that fear affecting your life? And how do you see yourself breaking free? So it's all about critical thinking. So I'm not giving these people like this is the roadmap to letting go of this, but I'm, I'm allowing them to think for themselves. Because when you give somebody the privilege to think for themselves, which we weren't able to do in the organization, then they can find their own roadmap to the area that they want to go. But when somebody, knowing this from being a wellness coach for a decade, when you hand somebody a meal plan, they can follow it for a short period of time. But after a while, it's it's just not going to work. But when you ask somebody, okay, I just want you to eat healthy based on what you feel like you want to eat healthy. That's more relatable. Also know that, If you do decide to have a cheat meal, 
it's totally okay. So if you notice these thoughts, these beliefs, these fear-driven things come up and you have them identified as an elder's voice or a parent's voice or something like that, identify it and then just change your beliefs to something else and then go inward too to ask yourself, do I actually believe these things? Another thing is like the holidays. A lot of my clients have really hard time with the holidays, birthdays being one specific one, specific one. I have a client that's saying, I I feel like something really bad is going to happen for my birthday every single time. This is a, a woman who's six years old, who is only a Jehovah's Witness from infancy to 20 years old. And now she's 60 and she's still having this fear that something bad is going to happen on my birthday. So let's, let's actually test that fear and let's see where that takes us. So do you know anybody specifically that has been killed or hurt on their birthday? Well, no. Can you tell me about an instance maybe you heard on the news where somebody got killed or hurt on their birthday? Well, no. So just constantly like asking them and just allowing them to think, okay, now how do you feel about your birthday? Can you, can you be more specific to tell me about how you feel in your body as your birthday approaches? What are your thought concepts? And what is allowing you to keep these thoughts also recognize you don't have to celebrate your birthday or holidays just because other people are doing that does not mean you have to. I've noticed a lot of the witnesses spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on Christmas decorations or other holiday decorations because they want to make up for that time that they lost. And they want to appear as I am not a Jehovah's Witness anymore without the actually looking in and say, do I really want to celebrate Christmas? Like, it's not just because you're not a witness doesn't mean you have to celebrate the holidays. Also, you can celebrate the holidays however you want to. For me, Christmas is literally spending time with my husband's family, having dinner with them. I do, I've do. i never in my 10 years out bought any Christmas decorations, done anything with Santa Claus, like nothing at all. It's literally family time with my husband. That's all. Holidays in general... Easter, let's say, oh, I might buy a, an Easter bunny chocolate because it's it's there and it's on sale and it's a Hershey one. And I'm like, oh, that's tasty. I want to have one of those. And they're, they're that big. So it's like you figure out how you want to celebrate the holidays if you want to celebrate the holidays. Notice I said if. So you have to ask yourself, it's a personal individual, just like the elders said, it's a conscious matter to do anything. It's a conscious matter if you want to celebrate the holidays. I don't know how you personally feel about the holidays. Well, I, I talk to people all the time who um, have similar issues with birthdays and holidays. And I say the same exact thing. For the rest of the world outside of the JW organization, holidays and birthdays are wrapped up in nostalgia, memory, family history. Mm -hmm. Um, And and these are the things that we don't have coming out of that organization. But what we do have, we could liken it to assemblies, conventions, the memorial, things that bring us together, that bring us nostalgia is the equivalent of holidays and birthdays for the rest of the world as it spins. So when we leave that organization, we're trying to just kind of tiptoe into things that no longer... Uh, identify us as JWs. And sometimes it doesn't stick. And as long as the reason of not doing it is something that you're deciding, that you are saying, this is why I do or don't want to do this. And here's my reasons. And you're Mm -hmm. trying to change your pattern of behaviors. If we're celebrating holidays and birthdays, just because we're trying to stick it to them, or we're just trying to prove something uh, that may not resonate with someone who is behaving in that way. Uh, So what Mm -hmm. I tell people is again, 
try it. And if it you don't like it, then you don't have to. But why don't you like it? Is it because you're afraid? See, and this is this is where we you and I agree on anger. Anger is a secondary emotion to fear and sadness. So when we Absolutely. feel angry, usually and psychologically, that anger is untapped fear, unfelt sadness, un, mm-hmm. it's unresolved. So mm-hmm. maybe people are angry that they never got to celebrate Christmas. So they never mm-hmm. got to celebrate that birthday. And so that comes from the grieving process. So I go through all of these things when I talk to people, okay, well, where are you in your journey? I actually celebrated Christmas this last year and it was great. But afterwards I thought, cool, but I mean, I mean, I'm not going to be heartbroken if I don't do it again. You know, I just, I don't have any attachment to it. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I completely agree with you. It depends on your motives, Uh, healthy versus unhealthy, not right versus wrong. Right. Exactly. And I think that's really important when it comes to anything blood transfusion, let's say like, mm-hmm. do you want a blood transfusion? Ask yourself mm-hmm. if you, if you do, then really, again, ask yourself, there's like, why's the, the five why? whys. Mm-hmm. keep on asking yourself, why do I want this? Okay. It, it might actually improve my health. Okay. Right. Then why do you want to improve your health? Like even the basic stuff, just keep on digging into deeper, deeper. Why do you want to celebrate Christmas? Right. Uh, I, I don't know. I want to, I want to feel like a child with the decorations and stuff. Right. Great. Okay. So go and explore why you want to do something, because when you explore why you want to do something, that's when you're going to get the answers. Don't go by what society is telling you. Don't go right. by what the news is telling you. Don't even go by what your partner or your best friend is telling you look within because the all fear, the answers, the fear and terror for JW, for people leaving the organization, the fear wrapped around yeah. this. A lot of it is that's the, that is the nail in the coffin in apostasy. And the way I was raised yeah. as a witness was the minute you celebrate Christmas, that's almost the unforgivable sin, which they made up. Mm-hmm. It's not even a real thing. If you're new to our channel, please understand that if wherever you are in your journey, if this any of this is triggering you, please go back and start from the beginning on both of our channels. But right now we're talking about how <laughs> honestly, when they put labels on behaviors and actions as creatures of habit, we are going to react to those cues. And that is why Christmas and birthdays are really inherently scary for many people leaving the organization. Yeah, very scary. And I didn't realize that until I started coaching the extra mm-hmm. was witnesses because I never had that fear. But once you actually bring fear and shame to broad daylight, mm-hmm. it has no space because then you're like, you're making it real, right? You're making it real. And especially when you're talking with a bunch of other people who have that same kind of fear or shame or guilt or whatever it is, then you feel like you're not alone. Then you feel kind of like, oh, it's not that bad. Uh, Okay. Then you can work through it. But it's when you're keeping it to yourself, it becomes a secret. It becomes yucky. Saying it out loud also adds more weight to it. If we get, we get in the thought patterns and the thought loops of I'm celebrating Christmas, I'm celebrating birthdays. I'm a bad person. Mm -hmm. Get caught in that intrusive thought loop. But when you Mm -hmm. say it out loud, I'm celebrating Christmas and there is literally nothing wrong with it to me. Mm -hmm. When you hear yourself talk to yourself out loud, it adds a different sort of substance to the, to the behavior of what you're doing. That's something I've noticed too. Even like, I'm putting my keys on the entryway table. And when I hear myself say it out loud, I may not actually lose my keys. But if I think to myself, I'm putting my keys on the entryway table, I'm not, it's just, it's more like a passive thought as opposed to a decisive action. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and speaking about shame, again, mm-hmm. I have two women in the 
in my group that have that just came out as lesbian. One is 40 and one is 59. And the woman who is 59 just came out last year as a lesbian. And she's still having kind of like a hard time really coming out. And one of the other women from the group, which I also vocalize, uh, who's also like in her sixties. And she said, every single human at some point had some kind of curiosity being bisexual. And a hundred percent, that is so true for somebody to deny that is like denying being human. So when you, when you just allow yourself to acknowledge it's who you are, it's totally okay to be who you are. And are you have other people kind of saying you are, you, you should be totally fine being you. And there's no shame in it. Like we've all felt this kind of way at some point in our life, if not all the time that now you're finally out and now you finally can be you is like such a healing, healing place. Well, you're also creating community for people that have shared struggle and shared experience. That's exactly Absolutely. what the community is as opposed to Absolutely. individual, uh, you have people going through the same thing. So I, what I find especially wonderful about your program is it's not just XJWs. You do work with women who have, don't have that, but when you do yeah. work with XJWs right now, you're focusing solely on women. And I think that that is something that we really do need more support in. So let me just speak for a lot of women whom I know behind me in the back of my head. Thank you for having that coaching program, uh, for having that space for them. Thank you so much. For Actually, us. two years, <laughs> two years ago, I came up with a program called Beautifully Vulnerable. And it's my, my, my elevator pitch was I help women connect to their most authentic self. And I didn't realize how much that was needed in the extra witness world. So when find your truth is the name of my program for the extra witness is the find your truth. It was a play on. We are in the truth kind of thing. So it's about finding the truth within yourself but it's the same concept of helping women connect to their most authentic self because we have this disconnect from who we were that is not even, we're so disconnected to our bodies. We're so in our heads. We don't even know what we want, what we think. And these women that I, all the women in the group, actually all but one are, I said, I have nine women. All of them except for one are between the ages of 40 and 62 years old. So when I'm not dealing with any like toddler or like teenagers or young girls and these women who have spent their whole life in the organization, more or less, they come to me and they're like, they, they want to speed through this healing journey. And they're like, I wasted enough years of my life yeah. in, in the organization. I just want to be better because I want to figure out this next chapter of my life. Cause I've spent most of it being miserable and unhappy. They also have this guilt associated with raising their kids in the organization, which is yeah. something, uh, a very important topic I'm, yeah. I'm planning on covering soon in, my, in a video with somebody. Uh, they're, they feel guilty that they joined the organization at some point. They call themselves stupid because they joined the organization. So again, kind of just going there and being like, you joined for a reason you joined and you stayed in to help your kids to drink, to get some kind of structure. So having other women who get it and who understand the concept in just going through the process is really healing. Another thing I think was really fascinating once I started working with ex-Jovis Witness Women is there were um, one woman lived with a regular pioneer for several years. And she said she was out all night, come, come to find out she was going to bars and like sleeping with guys. And this was a regular pioneer sister. 
the lesbian, one of the lesbians that I just mentioned, she was a roommate with another woman and she was actually her partner for like five or six years. And these were sisters, but that were looked in the congregation as just roommates. So there's a lot of things happening behind the scenes of the Jehovah's Witness world that nobody knows. Nobody knows besides the abuse, Mm -hmm. besides all that stuff. Like there's just like coming on, smiling faces, coming into the kingdom hall, going to the memorial with their proper attire and just we're Jehovah's people. They're on autopilot. I remember being on autopilot, you know, but we joined these, we joined these groups for, I could, I could think of three reasons. One of which is you think certain groups or certain gurus or certain people have the answers to life's most perplexing questions, which we are all wanting in one way or another. So we join groups. We seek out people who seem to have more authority than we do. We look to social media for where we want to be for our eventual life, for our eventual happiness or self-worth. And people also join these groups out of loneliness. Hey, they look like me. They breathe like me. They think like me. And before you know it, you've adopted these personalities. And so for, to those people who are regretting joining it, I know a lot of people who right now are being shunned by their adult children. Like they feel like they've created this monster in their families. Uh, My heart really goes out to a lot of those people right now, because it's, it's really sad the way that's going, but I think it's fascinating what you're doing. One question that I ask almost every guest on here, if you can talk to yourself, give a message to yourself. 10 years ago, or when you first started on your journey, because you know she's in the audience, you know she is. Mm. What would you say to her? Trust the journey mm. and see fear, see things that you're afraid of, but move in the way that you're, that you're afraid of. So if you see things that you're afraid of and life is presenting something for you, go in that direction and you will slowly but surely find yourself, but you're not going to find yourself if you don't, if you stay stuck. So go into the direction that you're afraid of, because that's going to take you into where life is going to, where you are meant to be in. And it's a long journey. Don't speed it up. Don't speed it up because nothing good comes easy. So it's going to be lonely. It's going to be difficult, but you're strong enough to live this life because the universe saw you and realizes that. So you need to go into that direction. If you just decide not to go into the places that you're afraid of, you're going to stay stuck. You're going to stay angry. You're going to stay bitter. So if you want to let go of those things, you have to keep on going into the direction that you're afraid of. It's a long journey, like I said, but I'm I'm 10 years out and it's still like learning the ropes here. I love it. I I love that you talk about fear a lot because the way it relates to JWs especially is fear and faith. Fear and faith mm-hmm. are both belief in something unseen. So when we're mm-hmm. afraid of something, can we maybe change that inner dialogue? Can we have faith in it instead? Because we already know having been in that religion that we can have faith in something we don't see. Why does mm-hmm. that seem more calming to us? Vivian, I want to I thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your story, for sharing your vulnerability, and for also being present for the women who are going through what they're going through and our audiences, really grateful to have you on here. Thank you so much. I have so much compassion for all the women that are still in trying to leave that are leave that are left that are their, their heads are still there, that the families are still in there, that they're confused. They're hurt. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to think. I have so much compassion for them because I've been there. I've walked in their shoes and it's, it's a very, 
isolating and lonely place to be in. And, but that is actually a perfect place to start your life because when you are that vulnerable, that is a perfect place. You have like this clear palette. Now this is a good place for you to create the life that you want. I love that. And I'm going to end on that note. I couldn't think of a better way to end, but we're going to have you back on again. Thank you so much for being here. And um, thank you. And I actually want to interview you for my channel because you have such great presence. So thank you so much for allowing me to be on yours. And I I hope to, to. let's do it. I would would love that. Thank you so much again. And we will talk soon. Did you hear that audience? The party is going to continue on Vivian. I I hope so. We'll let you know. (laughs) In the next couple of weeks when you have time, I would love that. Cool. All right. Thank you so much. She'll see you next time. Thank you so much for watching. And if you want to contact Vivian, her contact information is in the description box, like always. And that's all we have for today. And we'll see you next time.